0: Howdy listeners, bacon news from this weekend on the culinary scene and in the life of yours truly. A trendy new restaurant, Coral Fathers, has just opened up in the Coral District, and I got to go there on none other than a date. How was my date? Well, one doesn't like to kiss and tell, but as a reporter, I feel compelled I must. It was amazing. We got the Communal Noodle Sewing Circle, in which you weave noodles together to reveal secrets of your future and the state of the world. a guard, right? Our dish spoke of the growing abyss just outside of town, right next to the Sand Dollar Trust. It grows larger, consumes constantly. Who knows when it will reach us, who will remember us when it does? Maybe the new Toppenyaki place will have a plan. As always, thanks for listening.
1: Hi everyone,
2: I'm Jess. And I'm Catherine, and welcome to Across the Klein, the podcast where we explore the unusual ways we can meet in the middle. Everyone, today we have three guests instead of two. Um, we have Elijah Hall, who studies pollinators and climate change at ECR, and Ann Beck and Michelle Wilson, uh, who are two artists and created something known as the Rhinoceros Project. Elijah, would you like to introduce yourself first?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, so- my name is Elijah Hall. I'm a fifth year PhD candidate here at UC Riverside, and I study the impacts of climate change on plants and pollinators along climatic gradients and dryland ecosystems. So what that means is I am studying uh, plants that flower and the pollinators, mostly insects that visit them, Um, And I use either long-term time series or elevational gradients from mountain ranges to understand how climate change or the increasing aridification in the deserts of the Southwest are impacting plant and pollinator communities. Um, And a lot of what that means is, or what I focus on is how climate change is impacting the timing of plant activity and pollinator activity. So um, depending on when it rains or when temperatures increase uh, in the deserts, that has an impact on when plants flower and when pollinators are active. And so I kind of study how that timing and the seasonality of plants and pollinators is changing due to, due to climate change.
2: Uh, Anne, do you want to go next or Michelle to introduce
4: yourself and your projects? I'm Ann. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, this is Anne Beck. I am an artist. Um, I live in southern Humboldt County um, in the hills, very rurally in northern California. And I am one half of uh, the Rhinoceros Project with Michelle Wilson, um, who's here with us today as well. Um, and... Um, Let's see, the rhinoceros project, Michelle and I started working on the rhinoceros project in 2016. We'd been brainstorming about it since 2013. Um, and we were inspired by the, um, the, uh, extinction, recent extinction of the Western black rhinoceros and the seriously declining numbers of the northern white rhinoceros. That's kind of what started our conversation. And um, so we decided to embark on this crazy journey of embroidering a life-size version of Albrecht Dürr's 1515 woodblock print, the rhinoceros, um, in order to make a watermark from it so that the embroidery and the watermark would be like absence and presence presence and absence a watermark is a really ghostly uh technique and image and so we were interested in having this ongoing conversation about loss extinction mythology and history and revitalization that's awesome do you want to like expand on any of that michelle
1: and sort of talk you know introduce yourself as well sure so this is michelle
5: shall wilson i live in oakland california uh, maybe i'll give a little background just ann and i met actually through papermaking uh, we were both papermakers and you know there's not that many of us around the world so whenever you meet one you're kind of like oh we have to be friends you're one of my people and um i mean that's pretty kind of a short story on it No, <laughs> so. but yeah i think papermaking was where we started with the rhinoceros project the idea was originally yeah just to make this watermark and then it expanded from there you know it was a, a piece you know we wanted to make a piece about this absence that was emerging growing i'm not sure if an absence can grow or have a presence or maybe unless it's like the form of a ghost right and um which is kind of what a watermark is it's a it's an image that's made through absence but i think as um you know, as the project grew, you know, like Anne mentioned, it was gonna—it was supposed to be life size, or we wanted it to be life size. So how do you make something that big? And um, we came up with the idea of embroidery, but it did become more about the embroidery as it went on. And because course, um, I think Anne didn't mention—maybe um, she did—and I apologize if I'm repeating. But we—we we were trying to figure out how to do it, and um, we kept applying to residencies and thinking that we would you know, do it with a community and it would be done over the course of a month. Um, Which I think people were, we got rejected from everybody, everywhere we applied to, which probably was right because it was not a project we could complete in a month. It actually took us just about two years to complete the embroidery. We didn't work on it every day. We did sort of have a plan in action to kind of uh, maintain momentum, but it took us two years. But in the course of the two years very quickly it became about the sewing circles too about sewing with people about sharing this space but as we were you know sewing it also you know we held this time to think and it became also about diving really deeply into this history and what it meant the intersecting um things about history and ecology and you know colonialism and you know what what it's meant for you know not just a species of rhinoceros, but really what it means for the entire planet.
1: Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I really think it's interesting, this this concept of measuring the absence of something. And I think that's what conservation research is, is often trying to do, right? Like, Elijah, you, I don't know if, if you could speak to this, but like, you know, having methods to somehow visualize the absence. Um, and of course, like, yeah, you can also get into some of the you, you have to like get into the history and the, dr- the drivers of this absence too in your own research as well. So, so I don't know if you can speak to that a little bit, like what are some methods that you do in conservation ecology, um, you know, to, to like to that absence and um, some historical factors maybe that are, that are affecting pollinators, but also like um, you can expand to Michelle and Anne on these historical factors with the rhinoceros project and, you know, stuff like that.
3: Yeah, I'm happy to speak a little bit about that. And um, this is well timed actually because the, I'm trying to wrap up one of my dissertation chapters and a big part of it is it's not just that plants and pollinators are interacting in different ways, it's that there are fewer of them. And how, how exactly do you quantify that? Um, and a big part of it through like a conservation biology perspective is knowing whether something is there or not or is truly the absence so there's like in terms of presence of data there's presence only data, or yeah presence only and then to actually know that something is not theirs is really challenging especially with the kind of study organisms that that I am focusing on because insects and <clears throat> um, pollinators are so transient that it's it's Knowing whether or not they're actually not there is—it's quite a challenge. So, that's a big part of what I do because in studying the timing of plants and pollinators, I end up spending months um, out in the field and and looking for these different flowers and insects. And so, uh, you get a or I, I get a really intimate kind of relationship with the ecosystems that I live in and. And just trying to determine, you know, definitively whether or not something is is there. Um, and that's like a big thing, a, a big issue with uh, the deserts in particular is that uh, species are, are just going locally extinct more and more. And so understanding like how absences are shaping communities is is really important, and it's a major challenge in in what we do. And in terms of like the drivers of absence for for me, I'm a, a lot of it is focusing on aridification. So just how you know intense droughts uh, impact these relationships because uh, flowers and plants have seed banks, so they can go like many years of through a drought and still be able to come back and uh, you know, germinate after uh, after a drought in a good year, but they can't just do that by themselves because they need the pollinators to be able to sustain themselves in a drought when their food sources aren't there. So there's this whole like additive effect um, in terms of the mutualistic relationships between plants and pollinators that is really concerning for arid environments like the ones I work in.
5: I was wondering if I could just ask a question of Elijah that's sort of related to what you were saying. Um, and you kind of answered it, but I was wondering if you ever saw evidence of pollinators without seeing them. Like, do you ever see that the plants have been pollinated, but you're not seeing pollinators? And does that mean like that, that what pollinates is shifting or?
3: Yeah, that, uh, that definitely does happen. I I can think of one example in the San Jacinto mountains near Riverside, uh, and i guess it uh, i'm I'm thinking about manzanita uh coastal manzanita which is a, a major species in the chaparral um and they are what's called buzz pollinated so they need pollinators to vibrate at a certain frequency in order to release pollen so there are some bees that can vibrate their wing muscles. I think it is at a specific frequency that releases the pollen from the flowers where uh, most other pollinators aren't able to do that. And I spent months watching uh, pollinators visit these flowers and not buzz. Honeybees, for example, can't buzz, but they love these these flowers because I'm assuming as a nectar resource for the, the sugary nectar. Um, and yet they they produce a very prodigious amount of of seeds and fruits, um, so that kind of begs the question, like because plants don't necessarily need to be depollinated, even if they have flowers, they can be um, self self compatible even within one flower or within a plant or between plants of the same species. Um, so it could have been a situation where. Uh, Manzanita are able to do that or um, I only am visiting these plots during the morning and the afternoon so there are lots of pollinators like carpenter bees that uh, visit plants either uh, really early or really late in the day and there's also nocturnal pollinators like moths um, that visit flowers at night as well so um, yeah my uh, research doesn't, uh, I mostly just count things to be honest. So <laughs> I don't, it, within an organism, I am not uh, super well learned, but, uh, yeah, it, it, there's always this mystery of like, what, what is going on and, and plants and pollinators are so much more resilient than, than you would think. Like, um, where I work in deep Canyon, um, which is in the Santa Central mountains, they, This year they found a plant that was flowering that hadn't flowered in like over six years um, because there was so much uh, precipitation there this year. So uh, like they thought it had gone locally extinct or something like that, but it didn't. So uh, whether or not it was pollinated, I don't know. But uh, yeah, they're always a lot more resilient than you think.
4: It's interesting. I just think about, you know, my own garden and... and seeing um, so much evidence of insect activity but never well often seeing the insects too but just in terms of like caterpillars or you know eating or leaf miners or whatever like the damage on the plants but always just like turning over leaves and like where is this thing <laughs> like and never seeing never being able to find them so yeah the amount that escapes are. Uh, meager human perception is pretty massive.
3: Yeah, that's one of my, oh, sorry. That's one of my favorite things about what I do is because I spend so much time, uh, I, it, like hundreds of hours out in these plots uh, to look for plants and pollinators throughout the floral season. So it just, the longer you stare at something, the more detail you, you can see. And so it really, it's just a matter of time. Uh, and that's one of my my favorite things about the work that I do. yeah.
2: Uh, like all this is kind of bringing me back to earlier um in our recording, where I think both and and Michelle mentioned um uh, like a ghostly image through the watermark, but that's also created by uh, through embroidery. Um, and this whole idea kind of reminds me of like the mutualisms that you're talking about, Elijah, how these connections, these threads, if you will, between species, are what create these phenomenons that we can't always see directly and so i'm wondering where are like the other threads in conservation like where are the other connections that you might not always see immediately like with maybe others that you collaborate with or Mm -hmm. um like impacts that species have on each other that we can't measure quite yet
3: yeah that's a good question um, I guess ecologically, well, there's this whole study or this whole field of study, uh network, ecology, um and plants. so uh, which is kind of making a usually like two or three d kind of visualization or structure of what ecological communities look like because everything is or you know, nothing exists in a vacuum, basically, so. Uh, every species has mutualisms with, you know, usually at least like dozens of of different species. Um, and so that's a big thing that we try to do is study those, those interactions. And when we visualize it, it actually looks a lot like what you're describing, where there are like threads between different species mingling with one another, interacting with one another. Um, and yeah, so... There's that. And then in terms of human perspective, there's just a huge, It like nothing, again, no research I think can take place in a vacuum either. So there's always a huge network of people who, you know, you rely on whether, like for me, I work at field stations, so I couldn't do the work I did without the community of people who, uh, you know, cook the food and maintain the buildings and all that in these environments where... It's kind of challenging to be in because they're so remote and uh, extreme, I guess. Uh, and so, yeah, the the importance of uh, interactions and and kind of helping one another is never it's never lost on me personally. Whether it's you know research or uh, the logistics of research.
5: I would add, I just spent the weekend in Point Reyes teaching a workshop at a space called Fibershed. And um, you know, they 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 started out as an organization really trying to build a sustainable clothing economy. Like a fiber shed was sort of a play on the word watershed, the idea of like a certain amount of space and distance. One of their projects has that they has grown out of what they're doing. They've been um, working with farmers to do um, both fiber and fiber grown in various ways. Um, One of the projects they have, they now have a small education system on their their property that just started this week. But they're really trying to get farmers to do this where, um, and I'm not entirely certain how the science works, but has to do with sort of no-till farming, where instead of tilling a field, you're sort of layering compost over it. And allowing plants to grow, and then they just got a bunch of Jacob's sheep, which are like little spotted black and white sheep, and they're really adorable and friendly. (laughs) But uh, and then the sheep sort of like um, while they're eating the compost, they're also breaking down things in their 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 rumen, you know, that second stomach that things like sheep and cows have. And so it's not only returning and breaking down these things into the soil and making the soil more enriched, but the soil starts to absorb carbon dioxide from the air. So it's, it's beyond like, they're calling it climate beneficial rather than like carbon offset. And there, there's probably some reason for that, but, um, but they have some cloth that they've been making and are and marketing. And now they're actually sending it to, um, to schools that do design work, trying to get them to understand that this, there are these materials that are out there and to support them because, you know, like, um, fashion is one of the it's the second biggest polluter on the planet thinking about again how like we can you know raise agriculture and sheep and food but how that also connects to like the fashion industry and i mean this is not an and my project but i i think that thinking has been a, an influence on me at least like trying to think like this more of this umbrella effect and realize like, yeah, like, okay, this sheep in Marin might be connected to, is also, is connected to like somebody who's gonna design fabrics for the future or design clothing for the
4: future. This makes, thinking about like uh, plants and animals and inter um, interdependence makes me think about one thing that we've learned with the rhinoceros project. You know, obviously we were looking at like different reasons that the rhinoceros and many other um, animals are endangered or, you know, nearing extinction. And one thing that we learned about the certain rhinoceri is that when they were often taken into captivity in order to try to preserve the, the last remaining animals, they were suffering from iron overload. And it's theorized because they don't self-regulate their iron but that their diet within the wild was regulating their iron because they were you know eating like 500 different plants in the grazing certain of those plants were sequestering the iron and allowing them to excrete the iron and that that diverse the biodiversity um, was lacking so because of human development And so that was that was threatening their survival. But then when they were taken out of that environment and fed like just hay or grains, they were dying of the uh, not able to like excrete their iron. So that's been, you know, with the rhinoceros project, spending so much time with it really started to focus on this um, intense interconnectivity. Can I add to that, Anne? Um, in turn, I do remember another
5: thing that we learned was that, you know, when you preserve a rhinoceros, rhinos need space, you know, they're so like, which ends up meaning that you not only preserve the space for the rhino, but like the birds, and then you preserve plants that also are in the, like it ends up, you know, preserving a rhino ends up having, it means you end up having to preserve or protect or conservate. I don't know what the accurate verb is, but that you, you take care of more than just the rhino, but it had, I mean, you know, we, you know i think i remember as a kid even learning about the ripple
4: effect but
1: yeah i really like this idea like because like a, fu- a functioning community is like this higher scale right that's like more like it's it's all the sum of all these interactions but sometimes it can be really hard to see like what interactions like do influence this beautiful sum right like a community and ecology or like you know um the, I don't know, you know, even like your rhinoceros piece, you know, with your sewing circles, all the community and stuff that went into that. Um, So I think, yeah, like, it's, it's interesting. And in what you brought up with the, with the um, workshop, the place you led that workshop, Michelle, I think, I think that's the kind of thing we need, need to think about is just like, what are all these interacting forces within the systems that we're studying? And I know that this can be like incredibly difficult in science um I don't know Elijah if you can speak to that like I know field research is so much more difficult than like lab research and like but there's different trade-offs to like studying it in the lab because then you can actually understand I guess like individual impacts of all these interactions but in the field you're seeing like this like end product this like emergence of all the interaction. So how do you find like the things that that matter, especially when they are these like moving moving parts, like you just said, Michelle, because like you change one thing and now it changes everything else. And then like that, you know, like so it's it seems incredibly dynamic and difficult. I don't know if you can speak to that process. Uh
3: yeah. You're making a good case for why people do lab work. <laughs> because The confounds, uh, that's what, yeah. When in the beginning of my PhD, everyone was like, oh, this, you you got a lot of confounds here, which is true to me. This, like the complexity of it, like physics, that's just little, you know, atoms moving around or whatever. And that's the most simple form, but it kind of builds in complexity until you get to like ecology. Not saying that, you know, ecology is the, most complex thing, but um, it's kind of the sum of these, like, dozens and dozens of layers of complexity where you can finally see how, you know, cells are interacting to make organisms, to make populations, to make communities. Um, And so, yeah, it is really challenging to be able to tease that apart, uh, but I think it's really valuable to, in addition to doing lab work and to test, like, very specific interactions or hypotheses to be able to learn about the actual complexity of what's happening in nature because that's what at least to me is is the important thing is how natural processes are able to be maintained especially in you know the very rapidly disintegrating uh, ecological world that we are a part of um and so yeah i don't have a great answer for like how best to how best to you know, tease apart that complexity. I guess for me, like, it's easy to, like, when I was starting my PhD, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this. And I'm going to do it all at the same time. And then you realize that, like, it, the more simple, uh, just simpler is better in a lot of ways. And it doesn't, you know, take away from the fact that everything is really complex. But when you just focus on one thing that, you know, is Ecologically relevant, like plant pollinator phenological synchrony, is what I study. Um, so when and where two species coexist, um, and because that's like a requisite for interactions and for, you know, the the whole cycle of of life, um, you can kind of learn a lot from that fairly simple topic while contemplating the much more complex ecology of, of these communities
5: and the reason some of what you said made me think of there was some um, quote i read a couple uh, recently about a by a ranger in yellowstone national park about the track of the way they have to dispose of trash and the conflict between how smart bears are and how dumb tourists can be or something like that <laughs> i'm just thinking about like the conflict between those two species
3: yeah, there's significant overlap is I think what the is yeah. the, the part of the quote.
2: <laughs> yeah. So like um Ann and uh, Michelle have talked kind of a bit about what they've learned about uh rhinoceros and like rhinoceros conservation. But Elijah, I know you also do embroidery for fun. So has embroidery taught you anything that you've never learned either about the process of
1: uh, making images out of thread itself or your science? And to, sorry, to tack on to that, like, just talking about, like, the benefits that art can bring to science, right? Like, is, uh, you know, like, there are some people that think that art and science are completely distinct and should be compartmentalized as so. But, um, you know, especially as we talk more about these, like, intera- importance of these interacting things within a system, like, wh- what does that interaction between art and science look for you look like for you? you know, personally, but like, how have you seen that, um, come into play in conservation ecology? And, and then, yeah, Michelle and Anne, you can talk too about like where you think art and science, like the benefit of their intersection emerges.
3: Yeah. sorry, I should have led with that. I forgot about it in my intro, but I am, um, yes, an amateur embroiderer. Um, and I guess I, I've done lots of art, you know, just poorly, but Throughout my life, Um, I actually was thinking about this earlier because uh, when I was in the the, uh, thinking about like the connection between kind of my story and uh, art and science, and when I was in the fourth grade, I won a provincial art contest. I lived on Prince Edward Island, and the art contest was a drawing, uh, you had to draw a watershed, and I drew a watershed in all four seasons. Um, so I've been like subconsciously thinking about phenology and time (laughs) for for, like my whole life. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I think the connection between nature and, and art is, is always been really strong for me. And science is just a, you know, another way to understand nature. That's kind of what drew me to doing science in the first place. And yeah, in terms of like connecting, my work to the art that I like to do, which is is embroidery, um, for me it's uh, just another way to appreciate the time that I've been able to spend in these ecosystems and habitats. I, I find that pictures really do not do a place justice, and so um, I've wanted to find a way to commemorate uh, the time that I've spent in these different ecosystems and the species that um, I'm most fond of by Taking a hundred or so hours or dozens of hours to move some thread into, to make a picture of something that is really dear to me. So, um, for me, it's, it's mostly just a way to connect where and when I've been somewhere t- and, and to be able to kind of commemorate it more long term, I guess. The idea that science and, and art are not very connected is, it doesn't make, it has never made a lot of sense to me anyway. Cause, um like science the the product of doing science a lot of the time is writing a manuscript and a manuscript is or like a publishing a paper um and a paper is really just a story of the research that you did and i guess now it's been so like regimented and the structure of them is all you know exactly the same and the wording that we use has to be you know so exact and so a lot of kind of the beauty of of the work that we do is lost in my opinion in these in these scientific papers but uh fundamentally it's a story and and to me a lot of art you know it doesn't have to be it can just be for fun but um the art that i do is also a story and so it's just a different way to tell you know to share something like that whether it's for the greater scientific public in the publications that I write, or you know, just for me mostly in the embroidery that I do.
4: Yeah, I I I think that art is a tool much like science. It's a tool for learning to see, learning to see and learning to learning observational skills and extending that observation um, to be able to see even further and widen our perspectives. And also then to like process what we see, to metabolize what we are ingesting, what we're taking in, what we're observing. You know, I always think about like teaching drawing as like teaching people how to see and how to record what they see. So I I think there are so many similarities between the two. And then also like placing it in context in art, you can take liberties and and change the contexts and make them surreal. Yeah, I think that drawing metaphor was a great thing because mm-hmm. you know when you teach drawing, the
5: thing is the conflict that comes up when people are learning to draw is to trust what they see over what they know. You know, if you try to teach someone foreshortening, like if they're drawing, say like something coming right at you, you know, like if I, I'm pointing my my hand right at the camera so you can see this, but um. You know my arm has a length, but what you're not seeing that entire length, so you have to trust your eyes. So I think um, there's something there about both science and art that you know. I, um, you know, it's interesting to hear talk about extinction because I've just been reading *The Sixth Extinction* by Elizabeth Colbert. and it does it does part of the book talks about the history of extinction science and how you know, when, when humans really started kind of discovering like dinosaur bones and mastodon bones, it was kind of hard for them to believe that these species weren't like out there somewhere. Like, what was this? And that species were lost and like extinction. Like, cause every, you know, the, there was this idea that the world had always been the same and, and um how, you know, it just became more and more evidence that, the world is constantly changing. You know, both science and art kind of have been able to foster the idea that, uh, but the idea that uh, the world isn't sort of so static, that it is sort of like more wondrous and we need to be more curious in both uh, both as artists or as scientists or as both about what is possible and what is what are the questions we should be considering, I think. Yeah,
2: this reminds me, um, e michelle and Anne uh, kind of brought a new meaning, essentially the meaning of Albrecht's rhinoceros work has kind of given it a new medium. How even in art, like it's not a static world. How we Mm -hmm. uh, interpret a piece can change over time. And I know you're continuing kind of this project of making watermarks too with a new map, which I would love to hear about. Also, for Elijah, I'm sure you can speak to this like different science topics that have changed over time and what we understand and new discoveries all the time. And Speaking of time, I believe you also kind of look at our history to inform our future. So kind of along those lines, like, how does the past inform our current and our future selves?
4: Um, yeah, that, you know, this the story of what, what really drew us to Albrecht Dürr's rhinoceros print is the story of how it came to be. I mean, it's a very famous, if you're a printmaker... Or an artist. It's a super famous print. And um, Albrecht Dürr was, you know, a a famous, uh, is a famous Northern Renaissance painter, artist. But he was also a printmaker and making work for the populace at the time. And so this print was fairly widely distributed. It was meant to be like a souvenir um, of... This huge event that took place in 1515, which was the arrival of this one horned Indian rhinoceros to Lisbon. And it had arrived um, via the route that Vasco da Gama had navigated just, you know, 15 years prior. Um, It had originally been a gift from an Indian sultan to the Portuguese governor of newly colonized Portuguese India. Um, And the the governor had sent it back to his king to be part of the king's menagerie. And so it was a huge spectacle. It was the first rhinoceros that had been in, in Europe for a thousand years since Roman times. And all people knew about rhinoceri at that time was like what Pliny had written in his natural history, that the rhinoceros was the mortal enemy of the elephant. So they pitted it against an elephant in, you know, in a coliseum and the elephant ran away. It didn't. There was no fight. Um, but uh, after after the rhinoceros had been on view for a little while and news had, you know, traveled through Europe um, back to Nuremberg Durr was making the print, the rhinoceros was reloaded onto a sh- another ship and sailed to Rome. But on the way to Rome, to to Pope Leo, hit a storm and um, capsized and sank, and the rhinoceros was shackled below deck and drowned with the ship. So it's this, like, huge foreshadowing story of the plight of the rhinoceros today and the plight of the planet today, really. So that really is what drew us in. And since we're over the course of, many years working on this, we've just gotten like deeper and deeper and deeper into this history and other colonial histories and thinking that like looking deep into this history will help inform how we see the present and how we approach the present in a better way or with greater understanding.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I really love this story behind it and i'm curious like yeah I, I mean i love the metaphor of just sort of like the rhino having to sink and this proverbial ship sailing towards progress or like whatever right like it's a, it's really like i i can see that like how how meaningful the the this particular rhino is in in what you're trying to say about yeah conservation and i'm curious you know like with um you know with with any piece of art there is always like i mean maybe not always but i think good art maybe this is like controversial has this like uh this meaning that the artist like derives throughout the process and like from doing the piece how do you think that comes through um in the in the end product and you know because you said it was so much about process too with the you know years of sewing circles and stuff and and I'm yeah I'm curious how you can convey that process and the meaning derived through the process of studying it like in the in the final piece and and maybe Elijah too you can speak to that with science because I think that's incredibly important for science as well like getting getting the process conveyed in the product
5: yeah, I think the process has been easy for us to convey. I think it's the history that we've struggled with because it's hard to co- encapsulate that into, you know, a, a sound bite. And I, I wonder if Elijah has that trouble as well. When you're st- when you're thinking about things in a terms of a complex system, and you know, a lot of with a lot of interconnections, you know, you it's hard to distill. You know, I think Anne and I struggle with this with like. You know, like in as artists, you know, for anybody who might not have heard of it, there, there's the elevator pitch. You know, you're supposed to be able to like, you know, say, sur- surmise what you do in a in a sentence, and um, and you know, and so, but there's so many ways. I guess we could sum up what we do, and um, yes, we do community embroideries and papermaking events, like that's, but then the why is lost, and um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's something that Anne and I have ongoing is wanting people to not only understand. How it was made, but you know the compulsion behind it. I don't. I don't know if Anne would
4: want to add anything to that. I mean, I yeah, I agree. That's well. We've in order to try to explain, we have made. Um, when we first started sewing, we would have a lot of people come and be like, "Why are you sewing this rhinoceros?" And it would take us, like Michelle's saying, like there's no easy explanation. We'd go through the whole story of the rhinoceros and then talk about like. How it's connected to the environment and ecologies, and you know, and but also not wanting to be a complete downer and talk about like wonder and the absurd, the absurdity of sewing this thing. Um, and so we've made like numerous artist books that are like mapping out like all of the uh, all of the ideas that have gone into it, and that is really hard to still especially when the image you know has been kind of um, well it's static because we wanted one specific image that would come across in the watermark so we traced it onto an enormous piece of muslin and you know often with art like if you're painting or, drawing like and it's gestural and there's a lot of erasure and palimpsest imagery you know you can start to see like this person is really struggling with an idea or many many ideas and that kind of emotional process comes through but like this this is more um austere in its process you know i'm, I'm not sure what do you think michelle what about what i'm saying I think you're right. I think, yeah, that we had to have a, like,
5: you know, we had to have a plan for the process. We had to sort of have steps. And we had a lot of variables, you know. Um, You know, one thing that comes up when we do these sewing circles is, you know, we always say we'll teach you to sew. Like, you don't need experience. And, um, you know, the youngest person who sewed on the rhinoceros was, I think, three years old. Um, I think they needed a little bit of help. But um, if that three-year-old can do it, I think anybody can. And, um, but so we, but, you know, you don't want to but because you're you know people are approaching you you just met them you want it to be like sewing is fairly simple you can pick up a few stitches you know within a few minutes of training and um and i think people still get nervous because they've expected to be perfect and but you can actually sew pretty nicely if you just sit and be still and take your time even if you it's your first time sewing and also like i think we've also talked about you know the mistakes are also kind of the beauty of this project but um but i'm going down another rabbit hole but, um, but I think that, uh, it was once people were sitting with us and sewing where the meaning could be happen. And so I think that's one thing, you know, now we have the embroidery and it's complete. And so when you see it, you see the color, you see that it's, you know, very large and monumental and impressive, and it's all done by hand. But I don't know if you see that history, that conversation, all the, and I, I think Anne and I do because we lived it, but, um. And I think sometimes when people who have
4: participated and come and seen, you know, they, they remember that moment. But this is making me think about and I mean, across the, about like Elijah's work and all uh, and life. And if you look at one leaf or one insect, it's or one piece of art. It's really easy in this present day to like just see, just have this very myopic vision and isolate that from everything else. And, and I think this is what we've been trying to do with the Rhinoceros Project, primarily for ourselves, or because that's where anything has to start. Um, but also, you know, through conversation with other people, like, how do we increase our connection with the land and with other species and with the environment? Because isn't that where we need to start for any conservation or any environmental progress but yeah so it's really like this society like pin pins us in pins us in and hones our vision on one thing but if we like open our vision then we can see like look at that one leaf or that one insect or that one artwork and see the entire universe or i don't know that's really woo woo or whatever but (laughs) you know it's a matter of perspective right
3: Yeah, I I really resonate with that because like, for example, I work in the White Mountains of California, which is where the oldest bristlecone pines on earth uh, reside. And uh, just thinking about like if if you go out there and you look at it, it's kind of desolate. It's very dry and cold and there's not a lot going on. But if you just, you know, take the time to look at it at a different scale whether that's like you know getting really low and looking at all the tiny little plants and and how they coexist with one another and then on like a landscape scale you can see these like meadows that are surrounded by these trees that are many thousands of years old um and just in terms of time scale as well because anything you look at is a snapshot that has been developed from, you know, millennia of ecological interactions, like no plant is there f- for n- no reason. Um, it's there because, you know, thousands of years of other plants have have come before it. And even in a longer time scale, uh, like geologically, especially in the White Mountains, uh, you can really see how the geology of the place has impacted the plants that live there. So, um, just having an appreciate appreciation for like the spatial and temporal timescales are is really valuable. And yeah, I think that it's so important for conservation in general. It's like people experiencing these ecosystems and and having an appreciation for what is being lost, um, which I think is a huge part. Uh, or is what makes art and conservation so important because if we just had the data or if we only relied on the data and this goes along with like climate change and any, anything, well, everything, really, everything is political. Right. And if, uh, we just use the data, you know, we would not be driving internal combustion engine vehicles around and, uh, yeah, our our world would look a lot different, but it takes a lot more than just the data for things to change. And uh, yeah, like so that's like the uh, argument for like logos. But there's you know ethos and pathos, and art is so important in making people care about something. And without without that, then it would be a lot harder to to conserve species. So. That's one of the, when I think about art and conservation, that's like the most, one of the most important things is is so impactful and getting people to care, like uh, David Attenborough, for example, all the benefit that he's had.
2: Yeah, I just want to make a comment that I thought of, um, and I totally agree with like everyone, what everyone's been saying about like the role of art in conservation about evoking that emotion. Because it's honestly an emotional um, thing to talk about, losing species, losing ecosystems, losing the world that we know and a world that we might not be able to live in. But unrelated note, um, something that just popped in my head is that with the story of Albrecht's piece and that rhinoceros and that it drowned, um, but the fact that you are making a watermark with the word water in it and that it's a ghostly image, it's kind of like raising that um, rhinoceros out from its watery grave.
1: I really love that because see, we're really like showing this process right of making meaning through like we're we're imitating the I guess the content of what you're talking about in the form of this podcast the art, but you know I I really do love that like everything that we've talked about so far of just art and sciences as tools um to help us see more. And through seeing more, we can contextualize like these like snapshots. And it's through that context that we can derive meaning. And so I think that there, yeah, I love that we've that we've come up with that. And um, yeah, so I guess I'm just curious since we since we are going or coming upon an hour, we usually like to end with just sort of what each other may have learned from each other throughout this conversation how you can draw inspiration from each other. And then just any other like finishing thoughts or stories or whatever, like feel free to, to go right ahead, get into those. You know, I think I'm still thinking about, you
5: know, what Elijah was saying about like, what, you know, watching and counting in nature and the idea of like having to look for the absence. I definitely think I'm going to be, you know, walking in the woods now wondering what's not there. What am I not seeing? And Why am I not seeing that? You know, I think about the redwood forest a lot and I don't know a lot about it, but you know, up here in Northern California, it is sort of one of the the blessings we have and i remember ann taking me to the redwoods once i think it was the the avenue of the giants and um i'm not sure if that's like i think it's one of the last mostly untouched redwood stands in northern california but it's mostly redwoods and i think i remember ann you were saying something about how like originally it wasn't just redwoods you know they were intermixed with oak and and ferns and um and stuff like that and i live near a park like it's five minutes away from me called joaquin miller and it's a it's one of the last stands of redwood. They're not, they're actually new growth redwood since the 18th or 19th century. Um, but they're like, one of the things I'm very aware of is like how, how, le- how like clean it is. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, you know, the redwoods are very isolated. There's not a lot of ferns, you know, there's, and I wonder if that's just because it takes that long to come back, if that's because it's more an urban park and it's just more manicured. Like, I'm wondering what I'm not seeing, what I'm assuming is just the way it is comparing just two forests that I've walked in in my head. So I think, yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to be wondering what's not there and not sure how I can look for it,
4: but at least thinking about it. <laughs> I I think I think we also have to be OK with the concept of absence and and letting things go. I mean, that's part of the difficulty, right? Like embracing the ephemeral and, and embracing change and embracing like letting things go But where is that line between what's okay to be, what processes are okay to let function and go as they are and what processes aren't okay? I think it's really easy to get caught up in this idea of wanting to save everything. Do you guys know what I mean?
3: That's a huge topic of research, (laughs) to be (laughs) honest. Right. Like what what should we prioritize in conservation? Um, it's very controversial. Yeah. So yeah.
5: Right, yeah, we might even be at a state of triage, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we have
3: to decide. Well, I can I can uh, go. So I guess well I've I've learned a lot of things. I really enjoyed um learning about your guys' work and and um I guess at a, on a surface level, uh I didn't well at first I didn't know like what watermarks were so that's really cool and um i guess it's just made me think a lot about how you can make the same thing in in different ways and have it mean different things like the juxtaposition between the watermark and the embroidery um and it just kind of makes me think about how i can do the same thing with my research uh i often i i have this uh i don't know i'm always concerned that like you know i i've spent 5 years working on this degree and the papers that i will write uh, and publish will be seen by like you know 20 people and it won't really have an impact on uh on the world at all or anything like that i guess this is probably like a an almost universal thing like oh is what i'm doing important but um yeah i think there is a lot of value in in Taking what you've learned and trying to apply it in different ways, uh, and so that you can kind of teach pe- different different people the the same thing and and what's important. Because I think what I the the work I do is important, and hopefully I can get the word out there. So I I really appreciate just thinking again about how I can. And kind of think about what I do and in different ways. Yeah, I think this has inspired me to to double down on my embroidery work. I'm excited to start moving some thread.
5: got us <laughs> yeah, your papers. We'll read them.
3: Oh yeah.
4: <laughs> also, I mean, we had the pleasure of seeing Elijah's embroidery, and um, absolutely, it uh, definitely inspires me to up my embroidery game. <laughs>
3: that's the 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 beauty of it is it's just time you know like I'm not especially (laughs) skilled I just took a lot of time making making these things and that's my favorite one of my favorite things about embroidery just to go on a quick side tangent like I I'm not good at painting it takes a lot of skill and like drawing I'm not very good but thread you just are making straight lines almost all the time and if you just take enough time enough weeks you can turn those little straight lines into incredible things. So, um, for those of you who might be listening, who are looking for a new medium of art, thread work uh, and embroidery, it's a, it's a beautiful thing.
2: Yeah, I will say, Elijah did get me hooked a couple months ago, but I still have not finished. But uh, now, thank you for all three of you for joining us today. This is such a really fun and thought provoking conversation about just how art, and science combined together and finding meaning and how to approach conservation. And so before we leave, um, do you all have any websites, social medias, et cetera, that you would like to promote? And we'll put those in uh, our show notes as well.
4: Well, sure. Um, We have, uh, the Rhinoceros Project has a website. Um, It's rhinocerosproject.org. And we have Facebook page which has been a little dormant. Just the Rhinoceros Project, right, Michelle? Yeah. We also have a hashtag on Instagram, just hashtag Rhinoceros Project. You follow a hashtag.
5: And Anne and I have our own individual websites. Um, Anne, I think yours is Anne Beck Projects. Yep. Um, and mine is just MichelleWilsonProjects.com.
3: Um, I have nothing that I wish to disclose. <laughs> 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 I, I'm on Twitter. You can find me there, but I don't actually tweet, so don't bother um but yeah i i just suggest that you know go out and and do what you think is right uh and uh that's that's my last piece
1: can we have them personally email you for embroidery pigs? <laughs> <they're
3: so> <laughs> i'll I'll share some if you yeah. if you want to put it on the website or something so
1: i thought you had a
2: website elijah what happened to it it's gone <laughs> <Okay>. It's gone. <laughs> absent
1: <laughs> it's absent. Well we're studying Thanks. your life. Oh. <laughs> perfect. Okay. Well, <laughs> Thanks again. All right. Thanks again. Thank
2: you. So funny enough, I think this episode, like, was created, recorded at a really good time, because for our long-term listeners, um, Annika Rose Person. Who we talked to in episode two, actually asked me to give a guest lecture for her classes. She's teaching this summer about conservation biology and kind of what we talked about at the end of this episode with Elijah, Anne, and Michelle um, about like the embracing loss and the whole um, emotional side of conservation really resonates with me because as I'm trying to make all these slides, I find myself getting frustrated at times, not by the act of making the slides, but, like, of that information and how, like, absolutely heartbreaking it is to know, like, over a quarter of species that we know of are threatened with extinction and the, like, red tape and uh, barriers of, you know, financial, political, etc. to conservation work and all of that. And that's why I'm, like, while I'm making this presentation, it's, like, why am I getting, like, so... Frustrated that I can't continue to work on like these slides after making two of them, mm-hmm. and what I realized just now from our chat with everyone was like, yeah, this is fairly, this is a really emotional topic, and um, and like art is also really emotional. So maybe I'll go back to my sketchbook and just kind of get some of those feelings out before working on this presentation again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I think that that's that's something. Like, I, I kind of always was thinking that art was, yeah, a way to convey and get, kind of get out of this cathartic, like, experience of, like, you know, getting these emotions out, working through them, like, um, but, you know, also this episode made me think that art is something really important for getting at the essence of what Is meaningful to you about the science right and and I think that that's what's always important when we you know when they talked about the why right and like how it's hard to have a sign a sound bite about like the why behind something I think like I thought it was funny to see like them as artists saying that that's difficult because like that's exactly, you know, the same like that's such a problem for scientists. And I, I don't know, I would argue maybe even more of a problem because because we're, we, we are like trained to think of this meaning making process as something maybe that should be distinct because it's like not objective you know it's like and i i don't know like i don't know how much people actually practice that of like not <laughs> trying to remove themselves and like the meaning making from science but it, it is something somewhat discouraged or at least not in the forefront of like the you know subjective experience of doing the science you know well i don't know about like um not
2: including like the meaning because oftentimes when you're writing a paper when you have discussions I mean, it's not stated, oh, this means this, but it's often like our results suggest that this, I don't know, phenomenon um, occurs in the species or suggests evidence for this hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So there is some meaning imbued into science, even if it's not perhaps in the same sense as we would consider it with art about like, you know, this piece represents this emotion to me or conjures up these Thoughts for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess there is this distinction between interpretation and meaning making. Because in science, we we definitely have to interpret our results. I'm like in the process of trying to do that right now, and it's a struggle. Um, you know, to make meaning in that chaos, and that is a form of meaning making for sure. But it's like it's, I guess, how we um, like what what we are contextualizing the science within is what. Um, you know this what is important to think about because like I'm you know when I'm interpreting the results of my of my studies it's it's within the context of the broader scientific literature you know it's it's not what does this mean in the context of my life and my relationship to nature and like you know and so I think that's like maybe what uh is nice about about art as like a complementary meaning making process because you know like um, I do think that that is super important for science communication actually is like you know, getting that why across um that that secondary why across to people because I think that's like the kinds of context that that they're looking for for your for interpretation within,
2: yeah, that is so true. And I'm thinking about in a lot of science communication, um workshops or like talks I've attended or, even just talking to some of my mentors about interviewing for jobs or presenting a talk at a conference, how much like we, I and mean, we are human and like we do convey that secondary meaning that you're talking about through how we present the words we use. Mm-hmm. You know, I was t- telling you, you know, be enthusiastic about your work, be excited about it, which sometimes can be hard when you're, you know, in your sixth year and really, really want to finish. Yeah. But, um, I do agree that, and I think with uh, science communication, there is, uh, and I feel like in science in general, there is this kind of push towards humanizing science, you know, being okay with using the first person and not being passive in our writing. You know, instead of saying, this bottle was poured, just (laughs) we poured the bottle or I poured the bottle, stuff
1: like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that that is... um, you know, maybe relevant to this conversation of, like, trying to show process a little bit in science, like, trying to show that a person did it and, like, you know, it's, like, a first step in to be, like, I poured the bottle of <laughs> <laughs> It's, like, makes you remember that science is done by a person, you know? Um, and so, I don't know, I've just been thinking about, like, that process and just also, like, the, that these processes, like take time, I think was a really important insight that was sort of just like danced around throughout the episode. That you know, um, when we think about, you know, field experiments and lab experiments and like what kinds of insights you can derive from the field, it's like the field, like going and doing what Elijah is doing. Like he said, he spent hours and hours and hours. And it's only through spending time that like you can see certain patterns emerge that you know, like would be very fast in the lab if you're holding everything constant and stuff. But with like so much chaos, you need time to see patterns emerge. And like, I think similarly with their sewing circles, like you need time for the project to actually start gaining meaning and for patterns, you know, across different people's interpretations to come to the surface. So I think that like, really like, um, that's something we should think about with science is, is really like that, that it that it can take time and that that's just like how we're going to get through that that trade-off of like how can we get at complexity um you know without because we're not going to be able to control for everything and try to you know and then again like this this um what what did um what did I think Michelle or Anne say at the end I think something like participation is essential right and like that um, that we need to, like, increase these connections between people and the land to really start doing con- conservation, right? So mm. I think that that time is essential in that aspect, too. Like, spending time in a place is going to make you contextualize yourself within that place and ma- make that place meaningful, you know? Yeah, and
2: um, this reminds me a lot of, again, episode two. I, they both are about art and conservation, just a slightly different... Um, I guess framing yeah that's a good way to put it of that but also just how much um, like being with the community is so important for conservation because you might be trying to save an ecosystem or a species but most often the scientists working there isn't living in that community they're not the ones Mm -hmm. experiencing the impacts of keeping the species around or not keeping it around or the restoration work or the potential fears of people living in that area, especially if you're trying to um, bring back a predator, even though it's important for that ecosystem, these are real fears. Um, These are real uh, emotions, things that people experience and these are 100% valid. And there's so much connection that needs to be done in science, especially conservation, because it's, I don't know, for me, it's a very, it's a very human science as well, and a human mm-hmm. area of science, because um, as I'm gonna start off this guest lecture, uh, but humans are part of the environment. That's not a good or a bad thing. We just are, we impact it and it impacts us. So we can't remove ourselves from the equation.
1: Yeah, and and I think, like, also, you know, there's no one way to do conservation, and I think that's something that we, that, like, we could learn a lot about how to do conservation in a very localized way if, like, these kinds of questions are addressed on, like, a local and community-based scale, and so, yeah, I think... I don't know what that scale should look like, but I think it it should take into account like, you know, the heterogeneity in terms of like concerns that local communities have and like how that should factor into how the science is, the, the suggestions that the, the science shows and like how to actually play them out, you know? Yeah,
2: I think part of it could be through community science mm-hmm. or even inviting the public if it's possible to participate in some of these activities which again relates mm-hmm. to community science but it could also be like we're going to I don't know, weed this area of mm-hmm. invasive grasses so the species can have a better mm-hmm. um, chance of surviving
3: mm-hmm.
2: and in a way this kind of reminds me of our conversations about like things you don't see
1: mm-hmm.
2: or consider like you don't see the knots in the back of an embroidery or a watermark can only be seen mm-hmm. if you hold it up to the light or these interactions you might not even see happening but you know they are for example what michelle brought up like or i think it was Anne, um like you know in her garden leaves being eaten by something but not not actually seeing that happen mm-hmm. and i think it's these processes that aren't seeing the people that we aren't seeing maybe mm-hmm. like workers that are taking away vegetation that we've removed or the people are that are living Mm
1: -hmm.
2: a mile away from this um this uh reserve Mm -hmm. it's kind of like what isn't being seen but not but we shouldn't forget that Mm -hmm. what isn't seen
1: also doesn't mean it's not there Mm -hmm. yeah and I, I really think that is um why it's important to realize that doing science you are an, an embodied like actor right like because like yeah I mean I've talked about like Donna Haraway I think before on the podcast where she's she she like critiques like the the form of objectivity that um a lot of you know like the the, the form of objectivity that is removed and um not not embodied like just like a viewer from nowhere she calls it right and so we you know I think that yeah that has been almost like discursively removed um that can be like a side tangent later but I, I yeah I think we should be yeah cautious um and just encourage like I think that's what's required to imbue facts with meaning is to is to have a, a person that they mean something to and a community that they mean something to. So yeah, I really like how much this podcast has made us like think about like community process and everything that emerges.
2: Switching topics here, if you don't mind, yeah. something that um really resonated with me was Anne speaking about um like teaching people how to draw is okay. how to like teach people like teaching people how to see, which I definitely like feel that so much i mean i don't teach people how to draw but that's how i approach um like drawing something for the first time or studying like a piece or a subject to make an artwork out of it and i think in so many ways at least for me the process of doing art is basically the same as the process of doing science because i'm just staring at one of your I don't know if those are your pictures, but a picture on the wall right there of a piece of wood right now. And like, if I were to draw that, like it's all the details that I wouldn't notice if I wasn't going to draw it. It's Mm -hmm. the the shadows. It's the curve of the wood. It's the shape, the circles Mm -hmm. where the shadows hit, where the light hits it. And like the subtle changes in color, like, you know, the bounce color from the shadow, where you have a orangey brown brick of wood but the shadow on Mm -hmm. this gray floor there's a part of it that's that reflects that color Mm -hmm. and thinking about like the physics of light Mm -hmm. and all that and similarly in science when I'm trying to start um writing one of my uh, studies up or coming up with a new project going a deep detailed dive into the natural history of that species or that um, biological phenomenon I'm interested in, like all these little details that on an everyday basis, even working you know in the lab or in the field, I don't always think about. And then moving on from that, kind oh. of seeing how these things all play together to make a whole, whether it's a whole piece of wood on a gray background, mm-hmm. a whole um, system in an animal. And then it all kind of comes together in the end, as one oneness, and so not everyone sees the whole like process of, mm-hmm. oh, I made a mistake, got a racist part, or I definitely messed up on my um, labeling of data sheets. This is terrible because mm-hmm. it's very clean and polished in a sense. Uh, you, you may or may not see the struggle, especially in an, um, like a paper that you publish you're not going to have in your methods very explicitly, like, well, I broke down about 30 times while doing, (laughs) you know, the data analysis, or this mouse was um, removed from the study because it escaped. But it's usually put, well, we collected data on these many animals, but could not analyze it on this one animal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a a great example of like... (laughs) invisible thing um but yeah you know I I started really thinking about yeah when you were talking about this picture like of like making a picture right you you really have to think about the the details that you are going to include and and I guess like also you know um to be able to see those details in the whole I think that's like what being scientifically literate is all about right is being able to like look at a a, a paper and to to like look at how it was done the process and to be able to critically assess like those pieces and stuff so i think that like there is this this product and that like being being scientifically literate an important aspect is looking at the process and looking at like okay are these like features that you use to measure this thing like actually you know getting at the whole like you know and and so um yeah i guess that's like a cool connection to to have
2: Unrelated, what is
1: that picture of? <laughs> We're looking at a picture of um, a little uh, mega leaf-cutting bee going okay. into a hole in a piece of wood to make its nest. <laughs> or context. <laughs> I guess it wasn't going across in the hole.
2: <laughs> okay, now I see the bee. <laughs> I don't know, just a hole in a piece of wood. But- yeah, <laughs> it's like, why? <laughs> okay, that makes more sense why it's in this office yes. now. But yeah, again, another thing that you might not notice the first time. And I think that's why it's so great to revisit artworks or revisit um, science to see what you haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a way to express science emotionally. And I think what, like Elijah mentioned with his embroidery, it's like capturing his feelings of working with these species, working in these areas, And I think, again, like, I didn't mention it on our recording, but in our previous meeting about kind of art in conservation as a way of not just getting the um, information out there, but also like a way to process those emotions and like grieving, you know, when species go extinct, um, like apparently 48 species were declared extinct by the IUCN last year. So in a way that uh, the rhinoceros project in sort of preserving an image, even if inaccurate of a rhinoceros, like it's a way of remembrance and like artwork doesn't have to be hyper-realistic. It's, um, yeah, it's like, I can see it as a role in conservation, evoking those emotions, but also helping Scientists as well can't like process those emotions because it is such an emotional field. Climate change, conservation, etc. Like, like we've been talking about, humans. Our scientists, scientists are humans. Like we have emotions and we need an outlet, which again reminds me of Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. our previous episode just, you know, in getting to the heart of science communication, it's also realizing that science is not devoid of emotion or devoid of biases in
1: people yeah i i really love their their project because like um the this idea, like I mean, similar to what Michelle said, this idea of like conveying the absence, I think I, I like that that as, as a remembrance, right? Because that also like helps us with, you know, this this idea that we do like what, what Anne started to talk about, we do have to somewhat embrace loss and ephemerality and change, but that like those past things should still be celebrated in some way you know and their watermark is kind of that and um and grieved for you know so i yeah i like that thought
2: this podcast was brought to you by SciComm at
1: ucr you can find out more about us at scicom.ucr.edu and special thanks to our producer joshua rieger our wonderful guests and you listeners we'll see you next time on our journey across, across the cline